Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 18, The Anarchy of History. Chris, here we are again. I heard you just took your cognitive test. How'd that go? Not well, Josh. Um, they gave me a picture of an elephant. And uh, my answer was, that's a horse drawn by committee. And apparently that was the wrong answer. So I didn't, yeah, I didn't pass. I heard it's hard, though. So I, I understand. The, the last five questions in particular get really, really tough. Yeah. How'd you do? Did you, did you take it? I dominated it. Yeah. I'm sorry. Did you, I, I don't, you I don't it? like to compete, but yeah, I, I crushed it. I passed it. I don't think, you know, many other people could have passed it like I did, but you know, yeah, I've been training for this kind of stuff for a long time. Well, you're a pretty stable genius. I think you've referred to yourself that way in the past. I mean, it's on my, it's on my card. Yeah. It's on my business card. <laughs> I was going to have you just do for this episode, a countdown from 100 by sevens. I will say that 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 is something that goes beyond my cognitive ability. Mm. I, I sometimes fear, you know, like the, the drunk driver test, they, you know, people get stopped, they have to do these things. I used to practice those things. I was sure that I couldn't do them sober, much less if I ever stupidly drove drunk, uh, <laughs> that I would be able to do them drunk much, much less. So, um, no, I don't think counting down from, night, from 100 by sevens is a fair test. You know, it was a... Uh... You know, another week, wasn't it? I mean, uh, we've we've let off the episodes, you know, recently with various topical events. This week is is really no no different. We're still very much in the middle of, I guess we would say, what history as it's happening. You know, usually, look, I mean, I used to say for my students, you, you sit and watch the grass grow, and you can't see anything happening, and then, then you go on vacation for a week, right? And you, and you come back, and the grass is up to the windowsill. Something has clearly happened. You know, I was over on campus the other day, and and there's no landscaping right now. Gee, the trees are overgrown. It looks like uh, the rainforest outside of our uh, our building, Davies Hall. And uh, and yet, with history looking out the window, we can see it happening, can't we? It's things are things are speeding up a little bit. Yeah, it's it's crazy. You know, I guess the good part is it gives us stuff to talk about every week. I don't know if what we do if if you know there wasn't so much going on in the world right now. But um, yeah, you definitely. Every week feels like we're in a different world than the week before in some ways. Yeah, 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 it does. And the clearly, you know, the news coming out of Portland uh, that we've talked about, uh, you and I, is, you know, it's, it's disconcerting. It's foreboding uh, because, you know, what we're seeing are federal agents and they're, they're, they're pulled together from a variety of these agencies that you might even think that much about otherwise, but in, in the Trump era have become more prominent as these sort of, you know, uh, armed components of, of, you know, of Trump's federal power. You have the, the Customs and Border Protection Agency, uh, the Border Patrol Tactical Unit, U.S. Mm. Marshals Special Operations Group. I mean, I, I probably couldn't have named these entities you know, before, but they've they've been brought together now in, in Portland in a sort of, uh, you know, militaristic fashion under the pretense of 
protecting federal buildings like you know there's a courthouse and i don't know god knows if they're supposed to be protecting statues or something but uh yeah under the pretext of that but essentially as we've seen what you know doing the the kind of strong arm tactics against those who are still demonstrating in in portland yeah and it, i mean it's what it's even trying to do is is crazy because to a certain extent the more they show up these these quote-unquote federal troops what are what are they right. i mean they they dress they cosplay as as if they're you know members of the military they wear camouflage mm-hmm. for some reason i know there's a lot of trees in portland but i don't think you're hiding <laughs> uh using that mm-hmm. camouflage but but what it's kind of done and you it seems like at least is, is kind of steal the will of of the protesters to keep coming back um because they're not going to surrender their city to the essentially these fascist paramilitaries which is what they're looking like um my wife was looking i just kind of randomly was found a paper from a year ago and opened to a page and there was a picture of a demonstration happening in russia uh to kind of reopen up the 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 voting system because it's become so curtailed under under putin and it, the picture was protesters being pulled away by this paramilitary police force and they looked they were dressed identical basically to the the people we're seeing in portland they were actually wearing blue camouflage for some reason rather than green, mm-hmm. uh, but the, the same helmets, the same face masks, uh, the same techniques. And uh, this is not something we haven't seen before, we'll, do, we'll just say. you know. And, and I think we were talking about this the other day. It was, I don't remember how long ago now, a month, month and a half, that Tom Cotton was, for some unknown reason, given space in the New York Times to write this op-ed about the need to, to call out, I, I don't remember how, the military, basically, mm-hmm. uh, to put a stop to the, the quote-unquote rioting and looting that was happening in the cities. And obviously that was critiqued and it probably cost, uh, so, you know, the editor his job eventually. He resigned because he uh, admitted they hadn't actually read the piece before it published. But you really now, that op-ed is, is seeming more and more like a trial balloon to see how people would react to that. And despite the fact that people reacted pretty negatively, we're now seeing this next step in this, which is Portland. And, and there seems to be some leaked memos now that suggest that Portland itself is just the first place where this is happening uh, and it could be expanded throughout the country. So, uh, yeah, this is uh, some heavy stuff going on. Thank you to our Portland brothers and sisters mm-hmm. for for going out in the streets and keeping up the fight. Yeah, I think we have a real soft spot for Portland. You know, the we'll keep Portland weird, or you know, it, it's such an eclectic place, and and so many diverse, you know, artistic and political, and and just a a, a really kind of beautiful mix of, of these eccentric elements, you know, in a way. And, and so, you know, to see once again, these, you know, the bodies we've talked before, the bodies as object of punishment, of, of power, of force, you know, seeing the batons, the, the pepper spray, the rubber bullets, the whole array, you know. And so I found myself going back to uh, Michel Foucault uh, because Foucault really, you know, addressed as we've said now in, in a few episodes, address these issues of power and these claims of sovereignty. Uh, there's a work called Security, Territory, and Population. And I think it was published posthumously. Uh, Foucault died in 1984, uh, and it was based on a series of lectures he gave uh, at his university in, in Paris uh, that were compiled into book form. And you know, he's concerned with the strategies and tactics of, of power you know, we've, we've explained that before and then and what he calls the dimensions of conduct, which is to say how people are meant to convey themselves in response to different laws and different decrees. 
So if there's a curfew, the conduct is to be home by curfew. But he says, inevitably, you know, what you see also is, is counterconduct. You know, so how one can both conduct oneself, but also how one may be conducted uh, by power and therefore how one may respond to that with, with counterconduct. So, yeah, power, resistance, conduct, counterconduct. Uh, as he says, and I mentioned last week, where there is power, there is resistance. So you see counterconduct happening in Portland. You know, you had the ongoing protests that were uh, in response to the original issues of racial justice following George Floyd, but then kind of morphed into these other more general concerns about power and race and equity and such, uh, poverty in Portland. And then the feds come in and create a whole new level of power being applied here. You know, what he would call, Foucault would call a mechanism of security. These obscure federal agencies now, you know, militarized and hyped up, as you say, in camo. And, and, and then that creates then a new, seemingly a new form of counterconduct. So a kind of escalation of, of power and punishment and discipline you know, with, with counterconduct and resistance and, and protest. And he says, interestingly, Josh, in this work, you know, he's looking at the early modern period. He's looking at towns as sort of political entities, right, in the early modern, as, as having their own sort of laws and governance structures. And and interestingly, you know, what Foucault was looking at specifically were, were acts of resistance within these towns. So like when they would have bread riots or something, you know, when people would would rebel against the governing um, model. But he was also looking at epidemics like smallpox epidemics and how power would try to control people's conduct in times of epidemics. So does any of that sound familiar to you? Yeah, I mean, and it it really does. Because for for Foucault, public health was this key site of of power, right? It gave uh, justification for so so many actions by the state. Um, And so I want to quote something real quick, because this is actually from an author... Uh, Warwick uh, Anderson, who's working kind of from Foucault, but so this is a quote from Warwick Anderson rather than Foucault, but it's it's kind of in that on that same vein. He says, "It's often forgotten that in the name of public health, the state is licensed to palpate, handle, bruise, test, and mobilize individuals, especially with those deemed dangerous, marginal, or needy." Moreover, in the 20th century, an emphasis on personal and domestic hygiene allowed an exceptionally intense surveillance and discipline of subject populations which involved the refashioning of interactions and in- intimacies within those populations. So what we have right now is this, this moment where there's this, you know, that obviously this massive public health crisis going on right now. In theory, this could be a moment where the, the federal government could use this moment to further surveil, further, you know, uh, spread these kind of tentacles of power throughout the population. But what we have right now is a federal government that's so incompetent, right? Mm-hmm. So unable to do even the most basic things that they're not even able to really take this moment and use it in a way that would serve their own power. And what's left then is just these naked, uh, you know, kind of violent forms of power, which is really all they understand in many ways, right? They don't understand the, the, the subtleties of power that Foucault is talking about. So we finally have an administration too stupid to actually perform in a way that uh, that Foucault assumed that modern governments would know how to perform. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, are we... Uh... Should we be grateful for that? Or, you know, in other words, at least we can see them. The blunt edge weapon that they're using comes dressed up, as you say, cosplay, you know, in the, in, in, in the costume of, uh, you know, of the heavies, right? 
you know, mm-hmm. and, and so they're very visible, you know, I mean, I, yeah. I, I have a feeling that as you point out, you know, power could be used much more surreptitiously or something. And uh, that, that sort of segues, you know, uh, to the other big item of the week, news item of the week, which was the passing of of the civil rights icon, John Lewis, a long you know, term congressman from, from Georgia. Uh, who before he ever uh, was elected to office was on the front lines of the civil rights battle, the desegregation battles of the late 50s and, and early 60s. And, and you know, you're not going to read much, uh, you know, naysaying about a guy like John Lewis. At least I haven't taken the full plunge into Twitter to find any of the naysaying. I'm sure I'm sure it's there. But, but it's somewhere you know, even, you know, even Mitch McConnell is, is louding you know, John Lewis, uh, for his courageous efforts, you know, to, to fight racial injustice. And, you know, there's tons of irony in all this, of course, because on the one hand, John Lewis was, I mean, he was a radical, you know, and he was confronting power in the most direct way, that kind of blunt edge of power and suffered Mm -hmm. the, you know, paid the price for it uh, on a number of occasions, famously, you know, uh, being beaten senseless, basically, uh, left unconscious, you know, there in Selma in 65 with a, a fractured skull. And and uh, and so it, it gave me pause to think a lot about not just John Lewis, but how this American system of power has played out. And, and you know, I posted at one point on our, our HAG, uh, History Against the Grain um, Instagram feed, you know, my, my concern that we we do what we sometimes do. We've done with MLK, I think, you know, is, you know, when you create an official iconic figure, you know, a heroic figure, you tend to take a lot of the edge off, you know, the uh, the life and, and career of that person. You make him, make him consumable for all audiences, you know. He might have been a much edgier, more radical figure, but he's been rendered now PG, not even PG-13 for general viewing or <laughs> something. And I, I don't know. We'll see with John. Lewis, if that happens. Uh, but, uh, you know, John Lewis uh, was obviously, you know, paying attention to the George Floyd protests and whatnot. And I found a quote, he said, it was very moving to see hundreds of thousands of people from all over America and around the world take to the streets to speak up, to speak out, to get into what I call good trouble. And, and so, yeah, I was more curious if you had any thoughts ab- about that, because on the one hand, if you take John Lewis seriously, then you, you have to embrace counterconduct, what Foucault called counterconduct, you know, which means violating laws, uh, courting you know, physical violence um, or counterviolence, as Franz Fanon might say, you, you know. And, uh, yeah, so what do you, I mean, where does it leave you when you look at something like Portland what, and, and you think about a guy like John Lewis? Well, one of the things I was just thinking about as you were, as you were talking about that is thinking back a couple episodes ago where I quoted um, Ho Chi Minh talking about Gandhi and he says, if Gandhi lived in a French colony, he'd be dead by now. But let's not forget that being a civil rights leader in the United States is not particularly safe right. either, right? So could Ho Chi Minh have just as well said if, if Gandhi lived in the United States, he'd be right. dead by now. Because our civil rights leaders uh, have this uh, penchant for, we'll just say, dying young, being mm-hmm. k- killed young. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that John Lewis lived to 80 is is amazing, uh, but he went through some stuff to get to 80. Certainly, yeah, there's just, a, a, you know, obviously this, uh, this long history of violence against those who seek to make the case for their own humanity 
uh, and John Lewis is is an amazing example of that. And it, you know, the, one of the sad things is that we're we're now losing this connection, obviously, with that original civil rights generation. I think he was the last person alive who had spoke at at uh, the march in Washington in 1963. Oh, is that a stat? Is that right? Yeah, I didn't know that. I, I believe okay. that's the case. Yeah, you know, he was the youngest speaker that day, and. Um, there was a, a, a thread on Twitter from a guy named Angus Johnson, a, a professor, a historian from um, City University of New York. What, what he did is he, he found or he has access to the original speech that John Lewis put together for, you know, to, to give at this moment. He was 23 years old, by far the youngest speaker there. And basically, when the other organizers saw the speech, they said, you can't give this speech. There's no way you're going to give the speech, <laughs> you know, uh, in Washington, D.C. to this diverse crowd. And so they basically made, it made him soften the edges, as you were talking about. So even when he was 23, they were already trying to uh, soften his edges. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to quote from Angus Johnson here. But Lewis had written that the Kennedy Civil Rights Bill, in its present form, in the final version, would not protect the citizens of Danville, Virginia, who must live in constant fear in a police state. All right, mm-hmm. so, uh, so John Lewis's line, uh, the citizens of Danville, Virginia, must live in constant fear in a police state. Danville apparently had been the site of, of civil rights demonstrations and boycotts in, in that summer of 1963. And the government had reacted with brutality, with a lot of violence, um, beating protesters, fire hoses, of course, iconically. And then when they were arrested, they would cram them into overcrowded uh, jails. So, you know, John Lewis was describing the situation as he saw it, which was there was a police state going on in Danville, Virginia, and certainly other places in the country as well. And uh, the elders at the, at the speech made him change that section of the speech. So they had to change it to the citizens of Danville, Virginia, who must live in constant fear in a police state became must live in constant fear of a police state. So rather than a reality which existed at the time, it spoke to the idea that if we don't stand up, there will be a police state in the future. And so it, it's a subtle thing just changing into of, but it, it pretty radically transforms the meaning of that statement and, and the reality essentially that people live in, uh, which was then turned from already a dystopia and something that could be, become dystopian sometime in the future. So I would, you know, if, if people are interested, Angus Johnson, Johnston rather, so with, with a T, uh, just go find him on Twitter and you can find that that thread. But uh, really interesting to see all the little changes that were made, which, you know, the speech is still Fantastic, obviously, still powerful, but it was actually a far more radical speech, far more fiery in its original form before, you know, MLK himself and then um, a a few of the other kind of elders uh, made him soften those edges a little bit. Well, I tell you why I like that so much, because it illustrates a very, I think, profound truth about not just public discourse, you know, with power, uh, which if you want to see the March on Washington is very much a you know part of a public discourse and engagement with power right there in the nation's capital, right in front of the monuments, a stone's throw from the White House at a time when Martin Luther King and other civil rights leaders were uh, you know pushing the government, pushing the Kennedy administration and then the, the Johnson administration for you know federal legislation to provide protection of, of people's civil rights within the various states where there was not a lot of sympathy in the white controlled legislatures of the South for doing that. And so using the arm of the federal government to do that. And and so when he says, uh, you know, about living in a police state versus what the editorial change implied, potentially a police state, I think there is in the, in the kernel of that, you know, that, that expression, an iota of difference, 
you know, with mm-hmm. a Greek letter I was used in the, in the Middle Ages or late Roman Empire, you know, by Christians, uh, was a division over whether you saw Christ as God or whether you saw Christ as of God, you know, right. and, and the difference, the Greek word difference was the letter I. And mm-hmm. and so I, I see that here and it really gets to why we call today's episode the anarchy of history. Um, let's be clear, you know, we're not talking about doing a history of anarchy that, that could be done and would be interesting, I think. But we're talking about the iota of difference in the writing of history. If you choose to present something uh, of the past in an active tense or a potential future tense or, you know, it's that old joke about the past, the present, the future, walk into a bar and it was tense. And I, I give a <laughs> shout out to my English colleagues on that. It gets big yucks, you know, around the water cooler in the English faculty room as we talk about verb tense, you know, but really we're talking about things that convey in- incredible differences of meaning Right. And so when we say the anarchy of history, we're talking about how we actually choose to perceive the past. Do we do we write the history of the civil rights movement or the current moment of Portland under the general rubric of the national story and national sovereignty? And or do we and and the word anarchy means in its simplest, you know, sort of Greek etymological terms as having without master or having without a ruler. If we presume to step outside that narrative of sovereignty and to see sovereignty itself, question sovereignty's claim on power itself as valid or invalid, legitimate or illegitimate, the, the subsequent story you're going to tell, depending on how you answer that question, could be very different, would you say? Oh, yeah, I mean, definitely. Yeah, I think so much of our history is told is really the history of sovereignty. Right? It's, it's telling a very particular story. And once you choose to tell that story, there's all these other branches that then get left out that you can't see. You know, we've talked a lot about this this idea, or at some point we've talked about this idea that I think it's so easy as historians but, or people who are interested in history or people who are who are in history classes to just want to look straight ahead. I'm kind of thinking of somebody with a, like a neck brace on, right? right? You got it. Or uh, the Michael Keaton Batman, right, right, where right, you can't right, turn your head. Right, yeah. uh, you really got to turn your entire body to see. But, you know, when you're looking straight ahead, it seems to make sense, right? You can see this view and this everybody else is hopefully looking the same way. But there's this real power to to just shifting your perspective, just moving your head a little bit to the left or right, to uh, turning at a different direction. And what you see when you look in those those directions is, is in many ways, history, history becomes far more complex, right? Mm-hmm. It's not as simple. It's not as neat. But I think it's far more inspiring, far more beautiful, far more brutal in some cases. Um, but it's a fundamentally different kind of history. And, and, you know, with every degree that you turn your head, every degree you turn your body, you get an entirely different view that's also profoundly different from from the one you began with, um, but I think you know the, the the first the first step here is is just being willing to look in a different direction to not see history just leading up to sovereignty uh, being dominated by these these sovereign relations, uh, but to see something like a, a larger picture which provides more of those branches of the story than than we we generally get. Yeah, it's a larger picture. It's a messier picture. It's uh, full of contradictions. You know, I wasn't. I promised myself I wasn't going to quote anything Trump had to say. So this is only the the loosest paraphrase. But in his 
interview over the weekend with Chris Wallace uh, on Fox, he returned to the issue of history and and even mentioned the 1619 project, I guess. Um, oh, boy. I'm sure he's read that full oh thing, Oh, my right? gosh. And and so when we say the anarchy of history, you know, we have reference to not just to, to, to Trump, because at the end today I'm going to reference actually a honest-to-goodness American historian. But, you know, someone like Trump, uh, you know, who's dismissing 1619 and a different view of history, say an African-American view of history or something, you know, to me, that's the claim of sovereignty over how we tell the story. So, so when we and, and and if we try to tell the story differently, they have names for us, right? Uh, these days, they've resurrected Marxist, you know, or they say far left or radical, or they'll say anarchist. And so, yeah, I wanted to embrace that as a storytelling uh, badge of honor today. That the stories we need to be telling are the stories that aren't. A, approved, don't have the official seal of approval of sovereignty in the national story vein, and which instead step outside that that framework to question those claims of, of sovereign, you know, power. And so I'm going to, before we go into our next segment, I want to read, return to Foucault one more time. This is actually from a, an essay in a, li, a law school journal by a writer, Sam Holder, uh, uh, back in 2019, last year, and he's looking at uh, Foucault, he says, in what Foucault dubs effective history, all right, I, I would submit we're calling it an anarchy of history today, but Foucault called it uh, an effective history, an abandonment of analyses grounded in sovereignty is explicitly required. Historical investigations must not reveal the unitary eternal necessities promised by the philosophers of the past. And I think in the last episode, we called those the, the imaginaries, but instead mm -hmm. reveal the lost events, the traumatic disjointed discontinuities connecting historical epics. And, you know, gee, Josh, I, that's what I see when I, when I look at Portland or when I consider a John Lewis, I see the traumatic discontinuities, you know, of a moment in, in the uh, telling of that, that story. And, and to finish it off, he says the narratives of struggle, which always get outshined by the discourses of the sovereign. So we need to flip that on, on its head in a sense. You know, we have to take the sovereign story, which is always front and center and, and defines what's legitimate. And in effect, turn it around, turn it upside down, step outside of it. And it's really our guest today that's going to talk about uh, how he's done that in, in his work. We're very happy to have with us today Dr. Ali Anushar from the University of California, Davis, where he's a professor of Middle East and South Asian history. And I think actually that description kind of undersells what you actually do, Ali. So I want to go to your, your own description of research where you say, quote, I combine detailed philological study of text with broad historiographical questions in order to connect specific moments with trans-regional patterns. This way I attempt to link various subfields of study that are not otherwise in dialogue with, with one another. The movement of text individuals across large expanses are of special interest to me. And we've long been trying to make this case for history without borders and your work, you know, within that description and, and the stuff we've read of yours absolutely fits in that idea of history without borders. 
So that's why we really wanted to have you on the, on the show, because I think there's some, uh, you know, common interest here, even if our fields are, are very different. So welcome to History Against the Grain, Ali. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. One, one of the big reasons we wanted to talk to you was because of your emphasis on storytelling, which, which kind of shows up in a lot of your work. And, and storytelling as this kind of part of these projects of power, identity, and sovereignty. Both your books, first book was The Ghazi Sultans and the Frontiers of Islam. Your more recent book, Turkestan and the Rise of Eurasian Empires, examine these issues, I think, in different ways. Is that, is that fair? Yes, that's right. So I want to start actually from, uh, with a quote from your, your first book where you write, I believe this is the last line in that book, actually, quote, should this book contribute to the blurring of the lines between text and reality, then it will have served its purpose adequately. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? What, what do you see as the relation between text and reality? Yeah, thank you. So um, this the first book started, I was in India and I was reading uh, the memoirs in translation, who was the founder of the Mughal Empire, and actually something that his daughter had written too. And then I had the, um, you know, this series of like introduction to philosophers and I was reading, somehow I found Heidegger's and I was reading that. And uh, there was a scene in there where Babur in India and they're kind of cut off and there's this big army come in and Babur says that he gave a speech and he, you know, made these sort of symbolic actions and he evoked the memory of these sort of epic heroes of the medieval era and also the Ottomans as the warriors, holy warriors, Ghazis. And I thought that was kind of interesting because A, I, we had read about that in Ottoman history, not so much in Indian history, that the sort of Ghazi phenomenon was big. And I was surprised to see that he knew about that. And then the second question was, what is this doing? And this tied to what I was reading in Heidegger, he has this idea of de-distancing, um, antifernung, he calls it. Basically he says, you know, when you're on the phone talking to your friend, you're actually closer to your friend than the person that you're physically sitting next to. Or when you're walking down the sidewalk and you see your friend coming from the other side, you're closer to your friend than the actual sidewalk that you're stepping on, even though in reality, right? So, um, so I thought, oh, this is kind of what he's doing. He's kind of breaking there. You know, he's talking about the distance and the isolation and he's breaking it down by essentially putting in a conference call to these other heroes that he wants them to imitate. Yeah. So then that opened up to me all sorts of things because uh, I'm sure you recall in the early 2000s and the late 90s, there was this big debate in the history departments about whether or not texts reflect reality or not, right? Mm-hmm. So my thinking was maybe it's the other way around. What if, uh, what if reality reflects text? In other words, what if the text that Bob was writing is a kind of a script, you know, he's writing it the night before, he's preparing his speech, Right. He goes out there and speaks it to his, uh, performs it really in front of his soldiers. So the idea was that instead of saying, is there really reality? Is there really history? Is there only text? I felt like the assumption was that uh, reality should reflect text and it's a problem if it doesn't. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, text should reflect reality if a problem if it doesn't. What if we reverse that and say, text is a script and then reality is meant to reflect uh, the script. So that was, that's what that line was about. That's really great. Another reason I really like your work is because it's seemingly about a region and time very different from our own, but it's really dealing with questions that are still extremely relevant today. To me, your work especially demonstrates that to quote one of our early episode titles, the past is political. Can you describe to our listeners how the subjects of your research have used the past to serve their present? Right. So 
Um, you know, I, I like to say politics is discursive in the sense that um, you know, there's a kind of a repeated pattern of story, like you were talking about storytelling. There's a kind of repeated, repeating patterns of storytelling that uh, you know are used for history often, right? So in this, in these cases, you know, you take somebody, you know, a, a, an event, conquest of a town by a band of soldiers, right? Um, to them, most of them may be even illiterate, right? They come in and they take over a town. They have a sense of what they're doing, but then as now as rulers of that town, they have to be fitted into this political discourse that is uh, predictable and expected by the kind of elite audience, right? So the idea was when these people come and take over, they're gonna need other people to write it and present it in the form um, that fits the political need of the political elite. The problem is when you do that, when you present, you create an image of uh, your patrons in this way, you're also alienating them in their own image. In other words, they're looking at this text, this mirror that's been created for them, and it probably doesn't reflect their understanding. It reflects what the literate elite of that town are expecting from their rulers and that discursive tradition. So then, you, then the authors who have alienated their patron in this way have to uh, add meaning, right? There's a secondary layer. You bring in more predictable myths, religious uh, stories, to give new meaning to this alienation that has happened in the portrayal, if that makes sense. Right. Uh, so that's what that kind of political aspect that happens. In other words, you take reality, you conform it to a, a predictable, almost like a cliche discourse. Then you have to add further meaning to it, to the people you've just alienated by their representation using religion or myth. Right. So, you, I mean, it's part of this is just having these kind of cultural signifiers in there that people can, can latch on to. Exactly. So, you know, most, you know, I'm guessing my thinking is that if you were a soldier, you know, you're probably not well read in the you know, 16th century. Most people right. aren't anyway. So you've been presenting as this Turco-Mongol king, let's say, in the way that reflects the pattern of what a Turco-Mongol king should look like or should not look like based on this discourse that you're alien to. Right. Right. So, how do you how do you relate yourself to that image? Uh, and then the kind of religious and mythological aspects come in, the stories of Moses or Noah or what have you. And these are stories that you would more likely be familiar with through an oral oral layer. Right. Right. I mean, it reminds me, you know, you read accounts of the Spanish quote unquote conquest of Mexico, right? The Cortez right. and his man. And at a certain point you realize, oh, they're just basically retelling old stories of the Reconquista, right? They're retelling, retelling stories of, you know, these Iberian uh, defeats of, of uh, you know, Islamic states in, in the, the Iberian Peninsula, and right down to the description of, the, of like Tenochtitlan, which if you really dig into those, those descriptions, it's, it really just sounds like they're describing a medieval Spanish city in some ways, right? There's, right. there's exactly. elements that are meant to, to wow the, the readers in this, in this sort of thing, but it's, it's all about creating stories that will make sense to, to readers back home. So they'll be impressed by these things that the writers are probably not talented enough to describe in their own right uh, in, in many ways. But it right. also just makes sense of, oh, this is this thing that, you know, is part of our identity in, in, in the Iberian Peninsula. And now we're transferring that to, to this new place. So it, yeah, very it much like that. Yeah, yeah, it does seem to be pretty universal, this, this project you're talking about. That's right. Very much like that. I mean, um, you know, if, if I if I knew if I you know if you you could kind of do this comparative thing if you knew uh, literary universes and frames of reference, mm -hmm. 
Like if you, I don't know what medieval Europeans are familiar with. Is it the Iliad or you know the Bible or whatever? And then you kind of take a chronicle like that and actually see where each part is. If you know what text is it evoking? <laughs> you know, right? Um, so, yeah, very much like that. Um, so just looking at your your two books, it seems almost as if they're coming at this question from from two different places. Um, the first book is maybe that, that first story you're telling about uh, Babur, you know, he's kind of taking this, this, I think you called it a script, right? From yeah. these old, these old sources. So in, in that way, the past is kind of, I know, would you say the past is influencing his behavior or simply it becomes a script through which he can explain what, what he's doing? I would say in that case, you know, it's probably, it's a set of factors, right? One is, is that, um, we know when he's we know he's reading certain texts when he's going into India because he's mm-hmm. talking about it or he's referencing certain passages that you could then you know do this dig in and find out oh okay he's this is a passage from text X and I think what's happening is that as he's going into India he's entering a place that he's never been to before mm-hmm. so he needs information he needs travel guides and travel guides don't exist so what is he going to read he's going to read history books of the past to identify this river and that mountain and etc. And so what happens is it's the, the texts he's reading are not simply uh, descriptors. They are also, you know, they have events associated with each location. And I think that kind of helps him. Re, uh, you know, he's trying to orient himself in this new environment, but then the texts also add this extra layer of expectations of what should happen mm-hmm. environments. In the same way that I think, um, I haven't read it, but apparently... Julius Caesar, when he's you know going into Gaul, he's reading about Alexander the Great. Yeah, Alexander is reading the Iliad to compare himself with Achilles. You know, uh, or or Napoleon is reading about Caesar. So you know, there's certain expectations that you have. Doesn't even have to be cynical or manipulative, but you know, you kind of you know, I call it self-fashioning. But essentially, you are, you know, you're creating a new self for yourself in the process, sometimes intentionally. Sometimes because the, that, those are the texts that you're reading, right? You know, when I was in India, I had a friend traveling with me, and he had read a lot of uh, British uh, colonial travel accounts before mm-hmm. going in there. And I had read other texts. And I felt like we were both experiencing India, but he's experiencing it in a little way differently than I am because he's, the stuff that he's reading is, is affecting his perception and expectations differently than mine. So... I think in the first case, um, it's a combination of trying to figure out how to present yourself, um, but also uh, the material that you're reading um, comes with expectations. Right. Yeah, it reminds me, as you were saying that, there's that famous Marx quote uh, that man makes his own history, but not from whole cloth. You know that, you know that quote? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. that, that in some ways, we're all just kind of play acting these stories we've read. Um, right. And... Uh, you know, it, it, it's a great example of how the past continues to influence, influence the present and this idea that, that history repeats itself. Right. I mean, I, I don't believe that, certainly. But, uh, but if it does, it's because we can't get outside these texts, right? We're, we're so trapped right. in these, these certain stories that we keep trying right. to play again and again and again. And I guess it's also possible that it doesn't repeat itself and we try to make it conform into something that we already know and is predictable. Absolutely, yeah. That, that's make, much more, much more comprehension likely. possible. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, I actually, I was starting this question. I got, I got, uh, I got sidetracked into a different question, but what, what I was saying is that your, your first book seems to be about how, you know, someone like Babur is using the past to make sense of the present. 
but it seems like your second book is more about how how scholars and writers in in their present and in, in your case that's like 16th century mostly right in the second yeah. book how they're kind of creating a, us a usable pass past yes. themselves right that's right yes uh, so yeah in some ways i think it was dictated as much by what i was reading as a kind of pre uh, determined plan i suppose um, the second one, in the first one, I was trying to go against this idea of a kind of a cynical use of the past. But in the second one, maybe that's kind of where it's going. But it had to do with what I was reading. So, you know, you were talking about stories and storytellings. Um, I had, you know, in 2005, I think, this book came out by uh, Sanjay Subramaniam and Muzaffar Alam. It's called Indo-Persian Travels in the, mm -hmm. age, in the Age of Discovery, I think. And I, I kind of like that approach because he's essentially following the narrative. Uh, in, you would say critically, but still following the narrative of these travel accounts. And it creates this very, uh, I feel like it created this, this very intimate um, narrative, which connect, I felt like I felt a lot more connected to the authors, the primary sources, and the space that they're visiting. And uh, I thought this is a kind of interesting way. So I wanted to try that with these 16th century texts and they happen to be discussing similar things. So, you know, I thought I'm gonna follow their, you know, I'm gonna follow the narrative structure of each of these chroniclers um, and I'll just go along the grain, which is normally not what you do as a historian, <laughs> but not succumbing to their, right? Succumbing to their narrative either. Right. So, um, so because of that, then I saw these sort of repeating patterns, often the same individuals or, or individuals that knew each other are writing about these phenomena around 1600, you know, uh, sorry, around uh, 1500. Mm. So then it's like, well, you know, clearly they're drawing in this set of common tropes that they've all been educated in. And these are, you know, chroniclers or court, courtiers, um, except in one, there's one exception, but most of it's uh, were chroniclers. And so then, then you're looking at it from the perspective of not uh, political power players, you know, presenting themselves, which is actually fairly uncommon, but the more common phenomenon of people who are trying to find employment with such people. Um, and how do they, um, you know, create these stories and narratives and myths? One, one of the things I, I love, I think this is in your intro to the, the second book, um, you're basically talking about these, uh, these Eurasian empires, which you know, usually refers means the Ottomans, the Safids, and the and yeah. the Mughal, and they're they're generally described as being Turco-Mongol dynasties, right? Right. Um, and, and you make the case that the Turco-Mongol people didn't create these dynasties, but in in many ways, the dynasties created the idea of the Turco-Mongol people. That you're reversing the 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 causality in some ways, uh, and it's just a fascinating right. way, and it's a great example of of what good history can do. It can take these prevailing notions and and kind of flip them on their head. Um, you know, based on the way that we, we tell stories and we construct who we are and our identities through the past. So I, I really appreciated that, that idea. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, the idea was, um, it's, it's, I think part of it was because of the uh, sort of the heritage of nationalism or mm -hmm. racial thinking in scholarship from the 19th century, where, you know, dynastic history becomes uh, people's history, where you have a nation. So, aristocratic stories and just as you know with like the french revolution aristocratic privileges are democratized as rights of the people right yeah same in a similar way aristocratic genealogy is democratized as ethno history 
So all of a sudden, you know, 80%, 90% of the population, which was simply peasant, are now a people. And where do they get their people from the aristocratic lineages of their rulers? So now the people living in the British Isles all become Anglo-Saxons. Right. Or the people living in, you know, Germany all becomes the you know, descendants of the Gothic, you know, families, or we were talking earlier, the people, the Slavic people of the Eurasian plain all become the Rus, which are really just the uh, ruling elite, the Viking ruling elite um, of the 10th century. And they had genealogy, not the people that they ruled over. So I think this is a process where um, the confusion kind of happens. And now we look back at these dynasties and we say, oh, Turco-Mongol people that came out of wherever, you know, and they migrated and they settled and they created states and they replaced the, maybe the people that were there before or subjugated. So I was trying to get away from that and say, this is not a people's history. These are genealogies, you know, pre-modern genealogies. That's right. You know, uh, Ali, we've, Josh and I have been toying around with this idea of an anarchy, we're calling an anarchy of history. Uh, by which we mean not so much finding examples of anarchy in history, but rather an approach uh, to seeing the past, and, and just in the literal sense, anarchy meaning without a ruler. Uh, so, so many of the writers that you've written about, you know, uh, in that Turco-Mongol sort of tradition of storytelling and, and legitimizing of regimes, were writing for sovereignty. They were writing under the cover of a sovereign ruler and the claims of that sovereign, you know, to, to power. Um, but, it, you know, I, uh, there's a lot to say about this because, you know, we both love what you're doing with, you know, how you approach the story. Before, before a historian, you know, writes a, a history, the historian has an idea of a story uh, to tell in a very basic way, you know, and we've, we've bandied about a little bit with the Hayden White you know, approach to understanding history as a storytelling form and the literary constructs and tropes uh, that come with it. Uh, but you've said some really interesting things. I think it was in, a, in an interview that you did with UC Davis referring to uh, the Italian uh, historian Carlo Ginzburg uh, and his uh, idea of making things strange. You said you have certain assumptions that you immediately associate with a topic, thing, or place, but after a second glance, you realize you have to look with new eyes and peel through what you thought was there. So uh, I guess what I want to ask you is how do you escape that, you know, that, that trap of the narrative, particularly if it's a narrative, you know, framed around the claims of power and, and sovereignty? How do you, as a historian, how do you get outside that frame to understand, as Carlo Ginsburg might say, things from a, a strange perspective. Yes, thank you. You know, yeah, that's a very interesting essay. And he gets it from Tolstoy. Uh, Tolstoy was, I think there was a, there was a case where he's, try, he's trying to write about something from the perspective of a, of a horse or something like that. And I guess this was an enlightenment thing. We're trying to write about something from the perspective of the alien or the servant or the horse. Gulliver's Travel is a good example of that, I mm. think. So the idea is as looking at things that we've become uh, desensitized to, numb to, right? And um, sort of instead of saying, oh, this is familiar, I know what this is, to kind of ha try to have this radical um, 
uh, alienation from it. So you can kind of see it hopefully with a fresh eye and set it in a new narrative. I don't know if, I mean, I don't think it's possible for me to become ahistorical, right? And connect to the past. But I think what I can do is move away from, I try to be critical of my own current presumptions because I think that for me, the most interesting thing about history is that there are several strands in the past that came together and some of them disappeared for the present to exist. So I think to move backwards through these different strands that were sidelined or were not initially necessarily uh, you know, put together and then move backwards through some of these other strands and see. And I think you know, um, another approach is, you know, we have this both in, you know, I was talking about Heidegger, he talks about this, but this is actually an older idea uh, goes back to Buddhism. And it's, you know, it says the oneness of the, th the past, present, and future. So the idea is that you could change the past by what you do in the, in the present to affect the future. Now, there's a certain traje trajectory that we identify with at the present because we see this is how we got here. But there's a lot of stuff that happened in the past that we are overlooking. If I change my trajectory for the future and say, you know what, I don't want to be part of this narrative anymore. I want to go this way or this other direction. Then you can actually re look back at your past and say, you know what, I do remember doing these things too when I was a kid. I just hadn't been paying attention to it. Uh, so I think the idea is that if, you, if you're thinking of, let's say, nationalism and you're projecting forward to create the nation, then as a scholar, we look back at the past and we appropriate the parts that fit into this narrative that will, you know, say in the 19th century would lead to the creation of the Turkish nation state, the Iranian nation state, the Uzbek nation state. But if you change your mind and say, you know what, the, the era of nationalism is not what it was now. And now we're looking at some other things, you know, is the, the, the cult of the state something that's been really beneficial? Yes or no? You know, is the, uh, is internationalism more interesting or better in some ways than nationalism? Maybe. So once you, I think, project to the future and towards other possibilities, then you could look back at the past and find these elements that were overlooked or were hidden because of our political trajectory. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think for folks maybe not accustomed to reading a lot of the historical literature and engaging in these kinds of, you know, uh, discourses about the past, there's always a, you know, it's, it's a bit of an eyebrow raiser because folks will say, well, you're talking about the past as if it hasn't happened yet, you know, and right. in a way you're saying, well, it hasn't, the past hasn't happened in every sense that we, we might understand it. I mean, you, you used a, an analogy, I thought, in that same interview with UC Davis, you said, imagine yourself sitting at a table, mm -hmm. right? And from your, your perspective, you can see maybe you know, the table has four legs. You can see three of the legs. You can't see the fourth leg. It's hidden from your, your field of view. So what do you do? You get up and you, you walk around to the other side of the table. And uh, what do you see? Not only the fourth leg, but now you're seeing the whole table from right. a different perspective. Is that, is that kind of, you know? Yeah. Again, this, this I learned. This is, this is a, there's a lot of stuff from Heidegger here. I understand Heidegger's uh, political problems. I don't want to associate myself, <laughs> but I think I think he was. Re I feel like he was reading a lot of um, probably Asian philosophy, um, you know, Taoism and Buddhism and things like that. And a lot of these things are actually coming. He's, he's actually uh, bringing it from that stuff. But the point was, again, I read it in some book. You know, he's looking at a table and it says phenomenology. 
you go around the other side, it reveals certain other aspects, then, but simultaneously also hides, right? Hides the other mm-hmm. that you were in front of before. So I think in every time, it kind of, every revealing is also a hiding, um, a concealing. Every, it says every revealing is also a concealing. So the idea is that you we were, we were, like you say, we we're so used to looking at a phenomenon from a particular angle, concealing the other half. So when you come around and you look at this side, you're emphasizing the part that now you see. And then, sure, the parts that we were more accustomed to would have to get concealed for a while. You would keep that in abeyance, you know. So, um, yeah, that's what that, that metaphor was from. Well, yeah, I like it a lot. And, you know, to me, it, it speaks to, again, not just the past as a kind of completed entity, you know, a formed entity that, you know, we somehow have to simply translate, you know, verbatim fact by fact, as it were, uh, to have a a proper understanding of it. But we have to understand, first and foremost, our own own orientation uh, toward the past and how we choose to tell that story. And, And one of the things that, you know, Josh and I have been you know, looking at pretty closely and, and have expressed concern over is even some of the ways that we're trained as historians, you know, there have been, there's been such, I would say since what, maybe the middle 20th century, such an evolution of the, the methodology of history from that kind of, you know, literary art to, you know, an explosion of methodologies and, and, and fields of history and uh, approaches that uh, we become highly specialized when we're trained, especially, you know, in PhD programs to do research. And we become very competent. You know, there's a kind of acute competence in these specific fields and methodologies that, that we use. And then we turn around to teach these histories, say, you know, as part of our, you know, our contract with our schools, you know, to, to teach a certain number of classes or what have you. In the community college, you know, we, we teach five sections a semester, every semester. So we find ourselves having to now go beyond often our rather specific or narrow competence to teach survey courses. You know, let's say uh, like Josh and I do the world history survey courses or Josh does Asian history. Uh, these are big chunks, you know, of, of history. And we have to find ways to overcome that you know, that narrow technical competence to tell larger stories. Now, I I think, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on today is because you have done that so beautifully. Also in your research, actually, um, where you, we were talking before the show today about your language skills, you know, your ability to read the Persian and Turkic and, and even some Russian and German. And, and, you know, you have a quite a, a kind of, um, ecumenical, you know, approach to uh, the sources that way. And, and, and I, so I guess my question is, uh, you know, is how do we as historians, you know, trained to think maybe in, in more discrete, you know, terms about specific times and periods and places and, and through specific lines, how do we, in the telling of the story for our students and even the more general public, how do we overcome what I would call that kind of parochialism then? To, to teach a more ecumenical history, a more broad-based history without borders? Right. I think, um, yes, the big important questions. 
as far as the research, you know, there, I feel like there were two ways of doing this. One was a scholar who kind of masters all languages, you know, um, and uh, you know, approaches a, a topic. A, a good example of that is, is a French scholar, Etienne uh, de la Vazier, and he's written about the Sogdian uh, uh, commercial community in Central Asia and his connection with China. And I think I think he'd learned like Sogdian and Chinese and Tibet. He's he's one of those people that you know reads a lot of different languages, Russian, I think. So I feel like that really opens up in some ways your eyes to uh, you know you follow these various archives across various borders. I guess another approach would be a kind of a collaborative approach, where you work with somebody else. You know, you, you each of you work in a number of languages, and then you you know. Put, put this book together. There's a recent book on the Mediterranean came out some years ago, The Corrupting Sea, where you have like two authors writing this massive tome. So I feel in terms of research, I feel like well, then the downside of that is if you are, I feel like if you spend most of your time mastering the languages, then you won't really have time to study more the you know some of the methodological novelties that might be present in other fields right because you've spent so much time mastering languages and i felt like the ideal would be to try to do a little bit of both or as much of the two as possible um so that's what i've tried to do in terms of research so you know i like languages i've i've taken language courses and some certain languages are come together in groups anyway so if you know persian which i know because i'm a native speaker you know you could take basic uh, I took Arabic and I took basic Turkish. And in fact, Persian is an influential language. So Ottoman Turkish or you know, even Urdu, often that, uh, you can kind of see the influence of Persian. So once you learn the basic grammar, it's, for, you know, it's, it's a good uh, entryway from Persian to Ottoman Turkish. So that's sort of one approach. But, yeah, but like you say, the, the way to do it really is, I fit, it is teaching because teaching world history you have to take into account things that I couldn't possibly uh, be a specialist in or, or maybe read that much in. And I think that's where, for me too, it opened up ways of looking at uh, the areas that I study with, uh, study in a broader context. So, you know, it wasn't until teaching world history where I felt like, okay, Safavid Iran, I never knew how to fit it into uh, just providing an example of these early modern empires of the 16th, 17th centuries. But I feel like now, having taught world history, I understand how it fits into the broader, like the new world economy. You know, people used to talk about the Islamic empire, and they still do if you take world history uh, textbooks or even the Cambridge world history that came out recently, you know, talking about Islamic empires as you know, Ottomans, Mughals, and Safavids. And then they talk about, you know, Portugal, and they talk about the maritime empires. But it's actually, to me, one big, it's one story. It's the same story. And I, and I don't think you would have the Safavid state or the Mughal state where they developed without the Portuguese presence in the Indian Ocean and disrupting some of those sea routes and providing motivation for the land routes to develop. And on top of that, for a state to develop to uh, support, right, with security, protection of the roads, uniform coinage, weights and measures, things like that. Uh, so now I kind of, and in the 17th century with the Portuguese, even the Dutch come in, and then the Safavid state really becomes powerful. Why? Because they start to sell silk as a royal monopoly to the Dutch above marketplaces. So that creates the state. Because I always thought, how was it possible for 
Safavid with Iran to maintain equal power to Ottomans and the Mughals. The Ottomans and the Mughals have vast agrarian resources because of their geography. Iran has no major rivers that are comparable to the Ganges, the Indus, or you know the Nile, you know, or the Danube. So this is I'm just giving a concrete example of how I can connect now Safavid history when I teach it to the Dutch, the Portuguese, you know, uh, the conquest of the Americas, etc. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, This idea that, you know, once you've seen the lights of the city, it's hard to return to the farm, you know, that Hmm. once you've taught the world survey course, uh, and in my case, trained as an American historian, uh, as I find myself coming back to American history, I can't look at it the same way. Uh, And I'm going to say that's that's a good thing, by the way. (laughs) Right. That's right. I come in from the different perspective because I actually trained as a world historian. So I started with the kind of the, the broad stuff. And then had to figure out the specific stuff as opposed to you guys who did the specific stuff and then tried to get broader. But one of the things that, you know, in my program, we really focused on is this idea that any local phenomena, what you should try be trying to do is, is trace it to a set of connections. So you take the local phenomena and then you see how far away you can get while still making sense of that thing. Right? You look at the connections that, that kind of come out of that thing. And then the, the opposite thing is you start with a, a, a huge global phenomenon. And then you try to trace it down to the local level. How are these global things affecting local areas? But it's, it's really gratifying to hear you guys talking about how, you know, the, the act of teaching world history has, has really broadened your mind. Because I think that's ultimately what the, the promise of that, of that survey is, that students are being exposed to a different way of, of thinking about history than they're going to get in their typical, typical classes. That's right. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't know if you're, if you're doing okay for time. I just wanted to give two examples. Um, sure. Yeah. That you were talking about from the broad to the specific. And I think one thing that was, there were people, there were people at UCLA when I went to uh, grad school who were working on this. One was, uh, you know, connected history. Sanjay Subramanian was working on that. Uh, and the idea was to approach something as a specialist in at least, you know, two or three things. So he knew, again, he knew Portuguese. So he was a historian of the Portuguese empire and he'd done research there or the you know, Dutch empire. Uh, then, you know, and he can also look at Mughal Empire and then, then you, he's, not, he's not just kind of comparing from secondary literatures. He's an expert in two fields. And I think another good example was uh, Bin Wong mm-hmm. wrote a book, uh, you know, comparing sort of China with Europe. But then he's, he asked the right question, which is, you know, if, okay, initially I'm going to start looking at Chinese history from the perspective of uh, generalizations from European history. But once I'm done here, I'm now going to go back and revisit those European generalizations, having studied the Chinese example, and problematize that. And I think that's that. Those are like good salutary ways of doing connected or comparative history, where you're going to start with something, but uh, hopefully going to another region of the world, you can revisit the original set of questions from a fresh angle. Absolutely, and I think you know really important is you get rid of this idea that there's certain norms that every society has to conform to that. And if they don't meet those norms, it's somehow, you know, a lack of, of, of something or some kind of fatal error that they're making because they didn't do the thing in this particular way. Um, yeah, so right. it's, you know, opening up your, your mind a little bit to see things in a different way as well. Mm-hmm. Well, Ali, this has been, this has been fantastic. It really been a pleasure talking to you. Anything else you want to uh, say to our, our audience before we let you go? You know, I just had a really good thought and it just escaped my mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to come back then. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. Well, we'll have you on again. Um, Thank you so much. So uh, this has been Ali Anushar on History Against the Grain. 
And thanks again, Ali. Thank, Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's so great hearing from Ali. Uh, I think there's, you know, again, this is the history is telling is 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 in many ways so different from you know what we generally get. It's not in our current era. It's not in our current region, but it does speak so much to these issues we were talking about. You know, and it, particularly in, in that segment right before we got to the interview, we we're talking about histories of sovereignty, and here we have somebody who's kind of telling history. He's talking about sovereignty, but he's flipping everything on its on its head to a certain extent. Um, we, we were talking actually after the recorded interview about just where, you know, where Ali fits into this broader kind of academic community. And he says, you know, he's got colleagues who write, write history in a certain way that, you know, for instance, like uh, Turkic, you know, Turk, I'm sorry, Turkish, you know, radio stations and television uh, interview shows want, want to interview them. They want to get them on. They want to promote their books because they tell a story that fits into some broader narrative that, you know, that people in Turkey want to hear. And then, you know, he tells these stories that don't fit into these national narratives very well. They don't serve the purposes of those national narratives of sovereignty. And so, you know, the kind of history does, well, Indians don't want to hear that because they think of this kind of, uh, you know, Turco-Mongol history as being kind of foreign history. And he says that, uh, you know, in, in Pakistan, they don't find his his work Islamic enough. And so they don't want to hear it. And so he, he's found himself in, the, in this place where he's trying to tell these these stories about sovereignty, but outside sovereignty, and 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 where he finds himself is in this in this place where it doesn't fit anywhere, and that's I mean that's legitimately legitimately why we love his work. We're doing this history without borders, and here we have this historian who is you know really not honoring those borders, those national borders, those national narratives in any particular way, and and that's powerful kind kind of history, but one that uh, not everybody's, everybody's always going to want to hear. No, you're not going to win popularity contests necessarily when you present a narrative that runs against the grain of what everyone has very comfortably become uh, accustomed to. Uh, you know, stories of of pe- uh, presidents past and cherry trees and the freeing of hmm. slaves and fear itself. I mean, the, the, you know, these are kind of iconic national stories in the American context have their, their corresponding stories in the Persian and Turkish and, and you know, uh, Indian context as, as well. And, you know, look, I mean, on the one hand, I, I think, you know, what's so great about his, his work is that, you know, he's, he's able to consider these various contexts uh, you know, as he said, from the other side of the table, right? You know, in other words, you mm-hmm. get around the table to see what you've only imagined, and then suddenly you have an entire new view uh, of it, and and so your your sense of how to tell that story itself now may may change. And I, look, it's one thing for a, a, a president like a Donald Trump to do a kind of history on the cheap, as I call it, you know, with throwing out a few iconic uh, names and dismissing any others as, you know, as, as liberal or Marxist or, you know, whatever. And, uh, but to me, Josh, uh, and this is where I want to end it uh, for my part today is that's, that's easy. That's like the, that's like the troops showing up and doing you the favor of wearing the camo because mm-hmm. now, you now you know who you're dealing with, you know? Right. Um, but harder for me, I think is what I would call, you know, my colleagues in American history, you know, the, 
what I call them, the sort of liberal progressive historians, mm -hmm. uh, one of whom, David Blight, is a Yale uh, professor who gets a lot of play. He wrote recently a biography of, of Frederick Douglass. I'll try to contain myself there. Uh, we already had some really very good biographies of Frederick Douglass, but okay. Um, when you become this sort of anointed historian as public figure, public intellectual, uh, you know, he's an academic in this case. Sometimes you get the Doris Kearns or our old buddy John Meacham, you know, who seemed to show up on the talk shows and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And here's David Blight writing an op-ed for the New York Times uh, a few days ago, sort of, you know, lamenting, you know, all these things that have happened, you know, the conflicts, but, but the seeing in them a chance, you know, to tell a new story. And I'm thinking, well, gosh, that's great. Yeah, we need a new story. But, you know, here's what he has to say, if you'll bear with me. Uh, Professor Blight said, to the bafflement we now face around the globe as a country that could still commemorate so widely the side that lost our civil war. He's referring there to Confederate statues and rebel flags and that sort of thing. That lost our civil war in an insurgency to preserve slavery and destroy the American experiment. In other words, that people around the world wonder why we would celebrate those uh, who might be considered otherwise, you know, traitors or something. We would show the world, says David Blight, that we can make ourselves better and freer again. And, you know, I was I was cracking wise with you, Josh, when I read that. I thought for sure he was going to say, and make ourselves great again. And I thought, mm -hmm. oh, my God, there's been a convergence, you know, here with the liberal historical voice and the MAGA hat wearing crowd. Uh, instead, he goes, Americans claim a redemptive narrative. But we know the darker stories as well. Let's declare that we can do this by acknowledging and not by denying our pluralism, our inhumanity, our better contradiction, our bitter, excuse me, contradictions, our victories and our humane gifts to the world. Whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He was being magnanimous there for a second and acknowledging that we have darker stories. Boy, you know, the liberal magnanimity there, you know, to, well, it's true, we have darker stories. But he can't help himself because it's like in a sonnet, there's a volta at the end and suddenly everything changed. You're going in one direction. And he says, our bitter contradictions, comma, our victories and our humane hmm. gifts to the world. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I thought we were ready to have a serious confessional moment there, but he couldn't help himself. And so the iota of difference, the comma, the dependent clause was to switch to our victories and our humane gifts to the world. So I was wondering, Josh, if you could think of maybe what one of those humane gifts uh, to the world would be. I was actually up all night thinking about that. Uh, <laughs> the blues? I don't know. It, what, what would it be? No, I mean, that, well, that's that's one of the answers that the, the irony is that the best gifts I think our country's given to the world are gifts that come out of the resistance to this very narrative that he's, he's talking about, whether it's, you know, the blues or just the entire history of American popular right. music, particularly in the 20th century, right. kind of comes out of these uh you know these these styles that that existed because of of segregation because of you know the very system of cruelty and and uh and violence that exists in this country um but it also reminds me of, of something i've been thinking a lot about lately and we, we've talked about a little bit which is that history would be so much better um if an american historian would maybe read a book about somewhere else in the world every <laughs> once in a while uh there's a book out right now that I, I, I've been meaning to read. I haven't gotten around to it yet, but I read an uh, interview with the um, 
with the author. It's called the Jakarta method. Have you have you oh, seen I don't that? Know that no. Okay, so he's talking about um, in 1965. Basically, there's a coup in Indonesia. It overthrows Sukarno, who a guy I've referenced mm-hmm. before, uh, who was the great nationalist leader, who kind of built you know Indonesia and um, and in the subsequent purge, which was of course aided and abetted by the, the, the CIA, uh, the new regime possibly murdered a million people. Right, basically, anybody who was associated with, with left leftist politics, with Marxism, were uh, rounded up and, and murdered. And the Jakarta method then becomes this method for dealing with emergent left-wing parties across the world. And so what the, the author, and I, I, I don't know his name, but we'll make sure to have a link to it in the, uh, the webpage for this week. He's going to make the case that this method that's, that's kind of pioneered in, in Jakarta is then going to be uh, used again and again throughout uh, American foreign policy. So with the, the other famous example being in, in Chile in, in 1973, where we have another coup, which, which leads to a lot of deaths, uh, a lot of torture, a lot of, I guess these are American gifts. Are these the kind of American gifts we're talking about though? <laughs> I'm not sure that's what David Blight was talking about, but you know, I, I think there's, there's when you only see American history from the perspective of America, mm-hmm. right? From the United States, then these gifts of, of democracy and freedom and all this kind mm-hmm. of stuff look a certain way. And then you, you go to Jakarta in 1965 and are, are, are these still gifts that we're, we're giving the world at this point? Um, it doesn't seem as, as much of a, a gift as it maybe did from, from this well, different perspective. Yeah, so. it's such a good point. I mean, when I see the picture of John Lewis and, and, and you know, the photographers were there in Selma in 1965. Uh, when you see him in the, in the moment of being uh, knocked uh, unconscious and left on the ground, you know, bleeding by helmeted, baton-wielding uh, policemen, I don't think of American gifts at that moment. You know what I mean? But but it's as I said earlier. You know, it gets somehow translated through the sovereignty paradigm that somehow what that moment really represents is how magnanimous America is. You know how how much capacity we have for what David Blight sort of you know I would say euphemistically calls our darker moments. Uh, and 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 so it somehow gets it gets absorbed into this more feel good narrative, um, you know. And then we can teach children about what John Lewis really tells us is you stand up for your beliefs. I mean, who's going to argue with that? You know, that's like saying motherhood and apple pie or something. And so, yeah, I guess. And you've been nice, Josh. You've been giving me a, a chance to have therapy, you know, as I you know rage to you about these <laughs> things, but. Even for a guy like David Blight, unless I, I probably haven't made it clear you know, to our listeners, I apologize, but I, I'm talking about a way of writing the history framed with the perspective of, of accepting the basic legitimacy and claims of sovereignty and then going ahead and writing your story. So you write about you know, John Lewis or one might imagine someday Portland, you know, and, and you say, well, what the significance of these stories really are is that they show that America was right all along. And this is a a big tent and that we can have room for pluralism, as David Blake, again, magnanimously allows. Because what we're really showing with John Lewis bleeding in Selma is that in the end, our system was capable of addressing this, reconciling it and moving forward. But as I look at, at Portland, Josh, I don't see too much forward movement from Selma to now. It looks a lot the same. I mean, I, I I was thinking about this as you were you were 
talking about uh, Selman crossing the Edmund Pettus, Pettus Bridge, but you know, there's all these photographers there. Were they treated as, as press? Were they beaten? Right? Were they given? Because, you know, now it's being being a journalist in these protests is as dangerous as being a protester. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. So it, is, that, is that progress? Yeah. Um, there, the, I mean, well, there's, I'm glad you mentioned it. I, there's a guy, Robert Evans, who's a, an actual war correspondent that lives in Portland. And, uh, and so he's been, I mean, he's a guy who will tell you, you know, he suffers from, from PTSD, from the, from the stories he's covered globally in war zones, right? That, that you become exposed to this, this violence and this conflict in a certain way. And it, and it doesn't leave you, you know? Mm-hmm. And so he was interviewed, uh, you know, about what's happening in Portland as a local, right? You know, he said, I live here. I don't want to live in a place where this happens. You can talk about journalistic objectivity all you want, but I don't want to live in a place where federal agents and unmarked vans abduct people. So objectivity, a theme we've we've turned to, you know, riding within the vein of, of the sovereign story. These are all ways of mitigating, I think, the awfulness of these conflicts and, and the, the real suffering of the John Lewis's and, and many others whose names we may not even know, you know, on behalf of this resistance, this counter uh, behavior, you know, counter violence, etc. And to find in that somehow, you know, just another inspiring story of why the sovereignty of America is exactly somehow what we thought it is. And, and as you can tell from my voice, my intonations, you know, I have a real problem with that. So, look... Uh, to wrap it up, and I'll let you have last word, partner. But uh, you know what I was hearing in in the stories that that Ali was talking about, and that we've been talking about these last weeks, is not an invitation to see history repeat itself because we tell the same damn story every time, but to step outside that narrative, to embrace maybe a kind of anarchy of of history telling that doesn't serve that particular sovereign interest. I want to end with with a, a little story. This comes from a uh, piece by a guy named Michael Tausig. He's a historian anthropologist. He's writing, this is from the early 80s, I believe. It's called The Culture of Terror. And the, the starting point for this is um, this regime of terror in Argentina in the 70s. And the figure he focuses on is a, is a journalist named Jacobo T- Timmerman, who's an Argentinian Jew, who's also a Marxist. So he's a doubly enemy of the state <laughs> in 1970s Argentina. And as as the situation got worse and worse. The political situation got worse and worse. Timmerman kept publishing in his newspaper critiques of the ruling regime, and uh, and despite you know obvious threats of violence against him, he kept doing it. And eventually, he was arrested. He was placed in prison, and he says in the prison cells, the tortures and the tortured came together. And then Tausi quotes Timmerman himself. He says, "We victims and victimizers were part of the same humanity." Colleagues in the same endeavor to prove the existence of ideologies, feelings, heroic deeds, religions, obsessions, and the rest of humanity, what are they engaged in? So as we leave today with that that account, I do need to make one note, which is that we are not going to have an episode next week. Uh, I am going to be in a secure location waiting out the apocalypse. If the apocalypse doesn't come in the next week, we'll be back in two weeks for our next next episode. But this was, uh, uh, you know, despite the, the dark subject matter, it really was a joy talking with you about this stuff, as always, and then getting Ali in here as well to talk about 
you know, these these issues of sovereignty and storytelling and all the rest. Yeah, well, enjoy your uh, your road trip with the family, my friend. Thank you. And we'll see you in two weeks. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one goes in your eyes again. So you don't have to see what's happening. Then now, what's going on in these streets? You can't live by what you see on TV. Stop stuck in a cycle, so we repeat. Stop stuck in a cycle, so we repeat.